Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. A special thank you to all the listeners out there who have been supporting the show over the last year or so. The podcast has now had over 10,000 downloads, and I'm very excited that people keep listening and the audience keeps growing. It's a great motivator to keep on interviewing these great saxophone players, and I'm really enjoying meeting these people as I travel around. So thank you, and keep on listening. From more than 30 million views across social media, to his appearance on international television and NPR's Weekend Edition, Billboard charting saxophonist, innovator, Derek Brown, and his one-of-a-kind solo beatbox sax project have been exploding across the world music scene. Derek has performed solo concerts in all 50 United States and over 25 countries around the world. Known for his boundless energy on stage, creative audience interaction and musical depth, Derek's live shows always surprise and delight. His ongoing beatbox sax music videos and tutorials on YouTube have been enormously popular among saxophonists and music lovers alike with over 100,000 YouTube subscriptions. Previously the Director of Jazz Studies at Abilene Christian University for six years, Derek received his BM in Music Performance, Classical and Jazz from Hope College in 2006 and his Master of Music in Jazz Studies at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music in 2008. Crossing genres from jazz to classical to funk, without looping or electronic effects, saxophone innovator Derek Brown's unique playing style must be seen in person to be believed. Please welcome my guest today, American saxophonist and composer, Derek Brown. Derek, thank you very much for agreeing to this conversation. It was almost a year ago that we first got in contact because I'd started doing these podcasts and I had wanted to talk to you. I'm good friends with Philippe Geis and I think you'd just been to France on tour and he, he, he said, you've got to talk to Derek, you've got to talk to Derek. And, you know, as I investigated more about your music, I was listening more and I'm like, yes, I definitely need to talk to Derek. And then when we touch base, you mentioned that you had this crazy project coming up and we could either squeeze in an interview beforehand or maybe later would be good. So you've just completed a massive, massive 50-state tour of the, of the US. And you must have finished, what, just a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, it was, I think it was two weeks ago. And then I flew to Italy for another week and then I'm back and then I moved to sh- from Chicago to Michigan. So it has been a crazy last year. <laughs> but yeah, it was a uh, nine month tour through all 50 states. Um, and I played at least one gig in every state. So I called it the 50-50 tour, even though it was close to like the 75-50 tour. I, I had some states I had multiple gigs, um, in them, but yeah, I was, you know, I, I had done a fair amount of international travel, uh, especially Europe and as romantic or sexy as that is traveling across the seas, 
sometimes it's just more practical to, to do gigs closer to home. And especially if you have a family. And so my wife and I were kind of just dreaming about like, what if we did one of these big road trips in an RV? You know, we got an RV somewhere, drove from state to state. And, you know, like, what if we actually did every state? You know, it's kind of fun, especially these days, you know, to have a theme of, of a tour. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media. And so I'm always, you know, looking for different angles or themes of things and thinking about the press. And, you know, it's like, I mean, if I'm going to do a lot of states, why not go for them all? And I, I could talk a lot about, you know, how I booked this tour because it, it was mostly at universities with saxophone professors um, where I would come in and do a like a clinic or two during the day and then I would do a solo performance at night. Um, or then I even started to do some kind of collaborations with some sax quartets and some jazz ensembles. I've started writing some music for that. And so... Yeah, it actually happened. We we borrowed an RV from a friend. Um, my wife helped with logistics. We you know we mapped. We have this crazy map with all these lines and stickers drawn on there, and and yeah, we actually did it. We actually made it through, and we're still a couple. <laughs> and I'm still playing the saxophone, still enjoying it, and yeah, it was a very inspiring, once in a lifetime kind of trip. I would love to know some more about that and perhaps we can come back to the tour yeah. after because one thing I've been curious about, I was, I was sitting down flicking through some photos today of uh, different saxophone players and I was asking my daughter, how old do you think this person is? And she's, oh, like, she's like, old, old, <laughs> old, <laughs> pretty old. <laughs> anyway, it was a bit of fun. And she got up to your picture and she's like, hmm. She was a bit stuck because, you know, mm. some of your photos are quite, let's say, active. You're doing something. You're not just posing. You're not just smiling or something. You're actually doing something. And she was a bit stuck there. And I'm very curious to know how you actually got started on the saxophone in the first place. Yeah, well, uh, the story is I didn't even want to play an instrument in... When it, so in, in the American school system, as you probably know, you know, when it's fifth grade, sixth grade in most most middle schools uh people get an option to join the band and pick an instrument and i did not want to play but my parents knowing the you know the power of music and music education they they made, said derek you have to play at least for a year you have to pick something i remember going to this kind of showcase thing where they put all the instruments up and we kind of would decide then and i remember the saxophone like looked, you know, the shiniest had all these movable keys. It looked really expensive. And so I remember kind of thinking, hmm, if they're going to make me play, they're going to pay. And so I, I picked the saxophone because it looked like the most expensive thing. And so it's kind of like me getting back at them. Uh, and then of course, uh, now it's what I play. And it, I mean, yes, it's not the most expensive instrument after all. Um, but that, that was the reason. <laughs> so, was tenor sax the instrument you chose or was it alto? No, it was alto. Uh, like a lot of, at least a lot of people around the U.S. would start with alto. Um, and then I got, a, I got into a soprano, I have to say, probably because of Kenny G. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, say what you want about him, uh, but his music was everywhere. And for a lot of young musicians, it was kind of cool. 
And yeah, I kind of wanted to play that stuff. And so I got into the soprano a little bit. And and I can even look back on those days. And even though I don't listen to much smooth jazz now, like I look back on that and I'm like really grateful for musicians like Kenny G, Dave Koz, Dave Sanborn, because I would that was the music that just really inspired me where, you know, it sounded current. It was cool. It had this cool backbeat. Uh, and I would go into the garage and I remember like turn the lights off. I'd put my CDs on and then just like play with this kind of reverb in the garage. And it really got me to, you know, play with a good tone, play with emotion. Um, it was just music I could connect to. Anyways, it wasn't until years later, I went to college, uh, Hope College in a, a small school in, in Michigan. Um, and I got introduced to jazz. I, I, I was a jazz and classical performance major, but I also got into jazz. And then a lot of the players that I listened to, some of my favorite jazz players were tenor players um, like Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon, and Michael Brecker, some of the newer guys. And so I got into the tenor and and now and now that's that's clearly my 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 favorite choice mainly you know a lot of people ask me that why the tenor um and i think mainly because it's kind of this middle ground where the low end of the instrument particularly if you're slap tongue which i'm doing all the time it's just low enough where it can sound bassy you know it can sound like an electric bass um but the upper end can really cut through so like the slap effects sound awesome on a Barry sax, but the upper end maybe just doesn't quite cut through for melodies like a tenor. Um, so that's kind of my instrument of choice now. You know, Adolf Sachs always described his invention as an instrument that could replace other instruments. Maybe in an orchestra, the, the, the baritone sax could replace a bassoon or something like that. Did you ever, I guess as you were developing, did you ever have the idea that the saxophone could replicate other instruments and you just just described the electric bass and you've been talking about yes. slap tonguing. Did you think about that early on or has that been something that's crept up on you more recently? Okay. Yeah. So of definitely the 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 stuff that I've been doing with the solo, you know, beatbox sax style. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. That's you know what I've kind of called it a little bit, this beatbox sax thing. Even though I don't like the term, it's kind of a branding thing. It just kind of it's like an elevator pitch to describe to people what I do. You know, I like playing the saxophone while beatboxing at the same time. It kind of sounds like that. Even though I don't actually beatbox, I don't really listen to beatboxers. Um, but anyways, if that's kind of what I'm known for right now, I didn't really I was not even thinking about that until long after college, grad school, and I was teaching uh, at a, a college in, in Texas, Abilene Christian University. And so really not until like the last eight or so years of my playing was I really exploring that. So first, it was just totally a traditional, you know, I just like playing, you know, this band music. Uh, I like playing this classical music. I like playing this jazz music. You know, maybe I'll move to New York City and be in a jazz combo and make a million dollars because it's just, you know, that's why you do it, of course. Yeah, right. Um, but that was that was my thinking. And it wasn't until it was grad school. I was a second year grad assistant at the University of Cincinnati. And I kind of had this like, I call it my midlife crisis, you know, at age 23 or something. Um, but I was supposed to be a top dog. I was a second year grad assistant in this good program. 
And in came this punk freshman kid who was half my age and twice as good as me. And I was supposed to be coaching this guy in a combo. And I had this moment of, what am I doing with this instrument? Like, you know, I've spent so much time and I'm not half as good as him. And that was when I kind of realized at this point, like, first of all, there's so many of us that are trying to be clones of someone, whether that's, you know, in the classical field or jazz field. And one will never be the same as that clone. We'll never be as good as them or the same because, you know, there's life experiences involved and all these things. But then two, there's like, especially, you know, I wanted to be like a Sonny Rollins clone. There's like 10,000 other sax players trying to be the same thing. And there's always going to be people practicing more or that are just better at it than me. And so why in the world would anyone listen to me? You know, what is it? Is there anything that makes me unique? And I kind of had this for the first time in my life. I've always been an overachiever. Um yeah, this kind of straight A person always rising to that. And for the first time in my life in grad school, I was like kind of going to my lessons unprepared. I was unmotivated. I didn't know what to do. Um, and it wasn't until afterwards when I was then teaching full time and I kind of had the, the, the pressure was off a little bit. You know, I, I, I'm just definitely not a fan of, of competition in music. Uh, that, to me, that just that just drains my energy. That's not why I do it. So anyways, when I was kind of out of academia, for me, I just felt like there was less competition and maybe it's all self-imposed, but I could just truly just explore what I want to explore. No pressure, you know, and it's just like, if I'm going to play this instrument, I'm going to do it in a way that I truly truly want to and just exploring whatever my passion leads leads me and that was when yeah i started being influenced by particularly other instruments or kind of crossing genres and i can talk a lot about that that i've just never never known exactly where i belong am i in the am i more in the classical world am i more in the jazz world am i more in the pop world i have no idea um but uh, yeah, so, you know, I've taken sounds from, you know, maybe from free jazz, hearing a sax player use these like pop sounds, you know, like a, like a Zorn character or, or using slap tonguing. I mean, lo- like I've heard Sigurd Rasher do or Rudy Weedoff. And, and to me, yeah, a lot of times those sounds would remind me of another instrument, like the slap tongue reminding of an extra electric bass, particularly kind of slapping the strings or that pop sound, of course, reminding me of a drum, particularly a snare Um, or watching guitar players who actually hit their instruments. So kind of that finger style guitar and wondering like, I wonder if I can hit my instrument. That was when I started getting into using metal rings on my thumbs to kind of hit and scrape the instrument or using my feet to stomp like a drummer would or trying to find sounds other percussive sounds like other uh, instrument, uh, other parts of the drum set. So like the cymbals, can I get like kind of a hi-hat or a cymbal crash sound? And, and uh, it wasn't really until I started to piece these together in a way that made sense to me that, that I kind of feel like I finally started to figure out my voice or something new to say. 
And, and a lot of times, because I talk about this a lot when I go to universities, this idea of like finding my voice or kind of making your way in the music industry. And a key thing for me was taking this music that was really kind of deep, deep down in my soul that just made me come alive, which for me, it's like this kind of guilty pleasure music, the music I was listening to as a teenager, um, this, this kind of pop music, this kind of 80s pop music. Uh, and, you know, when I went to college, I kind of, I kind of hid that under the bed. And, you know, there, I'm, I could talk more about the, how I was glad for a period that I did that because, you know, I wanted to fully dive into classical music and I wanted to fully dive into to jazz, bebop. Uh, but then it, it, was when I, it wasn't until I actually then brought that back out and it was like, I wonder if I could use these sounds you know, these new tools that I'm using, whether it's from the classical repertoire or jazz. And when I start to incorporate them in this kind of this lens or frame of this music that really excites me, this music that has a backbeat, this pop music, this funk music, when I apply those tools to that stuff, that was when I realized I came alive and maybe had something to say in kind of a new place to explore, at least for me. And, and since then, I haven't been looking back. It's just, what else can I do? Did any of this happen while you were still having lessons or were in, in an institution, or did it all happen afterwards? <sighs> the, the putting it together definitely came afterwards. Um, in lessons, you know... <sighs> In lessons, I mean, it was definitely more about the, the the fundamentals, the foundational. And I'm so glad that I had that stuff because also, you know, I I see a lot of young people, you know, and I'm I'm throwing all this stuff out there, all these tutorials about all these techniques that I'm that I'm doing. Pretty much everything I do, I put it out there on a YouTube tutorial. Um, and I see some of these some of these kids, like in middle school, they're trying to do all this stuff, and that's cool. But I'm also glad that I really had a strong foundation, a strong grasp of tone, intonation, you know, basic idea concepts of of improvisation and sight reading. Uh, because otherwise, you know, I, I just don't know if the music would have as much integrity or not. And so, yeah, really, the lessons were mainly about that stuff. Um, at that time, I mean, a little bit at the end of undergrad and graduate school, kind of the end of my last lessons, I was just starting to explore slap tonguing and uh, these kind of pop sounds that kind of sound like open slap tonguing. Uh, and I remember my sax professor who didn't do any of that stuff. He was still, he was still pretty encouraging. He, I mean, he said, I'm not going to work with you on that because I don't do that myself, but keep exploring that Derek, you know? Um, and, and at that time, you know, I was, I was, I was very deep into to jazz in grad school and I didn't know how to put it into like swinging, you know, chang, tang, a dang, dang, a dang. I didn't know how to do that. I'm still kind of trying to slowly incorporate that idea, but it was mostly really afterwards, I would say. Did you experience some different styles of teaching on your way through as a student? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, on both sides of the gamut, I mean, in high school, uh, so when I was just kind of learning, middle school, high school, I did not have, you know, my band director did not play saxophone. Uh, didn't know a, a lot about jazz. Um, and I almost view that as kind of a good thing because 
there was this period of he was still encouraging of, hey, oh, um, you guys are kind of, you know, rising to the top. I need to find new stuff for you guys to do. Why don't you guys, instead of rehearsing today, why don't you go into this practice room and try doing like this jazz combo thing? Here's some music just kind of, you know, we're just kind of thrown off on our own to figure this out. And so we actually had to listen to it ourselves. We had to figure out how to put this together. We had to figure out how to keep it together when it got off. And then we were also motivated to, you know, instead of everything being kind of handed to us or being told to us, like it's so easy. And I was a teacher for six years and it's so easy to just tell, do this, do that, do that. Nope, don't do that, do that. And But sometimes when you have that freedom, that's when you really grow because you have to figure it, you have to really internalize it and you have to figure it out on your own and that stays with you. And so I'm kind of glad for that experience. Um, Also, this isn't necessarily a teaching style, but just kind of having both experiences of going to a small school and a large school were both really good and formative for me uh, because I I mentioned this, this school the small school Hope College in Michigan. That was a pretty small school. And that was good for me. If I had gone directly to one of these schools like University of North Texas, where there's literally 200 saxophone majors, you know, a lot of us musicians, or at least I do, struggle a lot with self-esteem. And, you know, we're always comparing ourselves to others and we get frustrated easily. And if I, at that age, if I was just thrown into that mix, I would have gotten so lost and so discouraged by all these amazing players. I, I really think I would have given up had I gone to a big school because I didn't have any strong foundation. I had no self-confidence in my playing. And so for me, going to the small school and getting this more individual attention, one, it allowed me to kind of build up that self-confidence. But Two, it allowed me to just be involved in lots of things, Um, whereas maybe I wouldn't have made the cut for these top jazz bands. At this small school, you know, eventually I got to be the lead tenor in the in the jazz band. I got to be in the, you know, the sax quartet and kind of take a, uh, a leadership role in that. I got to to play different instruments in the wind ensemble. Um, I got to, you know, all those kind of things that maybe in a bigger school I wouldn't have had those chances at that time. But at the same time, you know, as my ego is rising and I'm starting to think I'm pretty good, you know, this is this isn't going to be too hard making a career of this. Then I needed that important step, uh, that important step of going to a large school like Cincinnati and realizing, oh, wow, there are a whole lot of good players. And my gosh, like I got to step up my game. And, and, and that was what really took me to made me take it seriously, this idea of like finding my voice, like what is the thing that makes me unique? What is it that I have to say? Um, Yes, it almost made me quit, but rising through that, I of course got, I I just, yeah, was able to grow much stronger. A lot of people say the standard of sax playing's just getting better and better and younger and younger throughout, you know, around the world. Do you think that the challenge of, as you describe it, finding your voice is really the number one challenge because there's so many great players. But a lot of great players doing this similar thing. Is there something that you have come across on your way through 
that can enable people to make that step to do something different to their teacher did or their peers are doing and, and take a risk and do something different? Is there something you've found that can really kick people over that line? Yeah. I mean, there's a, f- a few things because I do think that is the, I mean, that's the million dollar question in this age of just oversaturation of music. Um, is like, yeah, what is it that makes you unique or what is it your your thing to say? The one thing I have to say before this, I often like to tell people, I, I think it's the best of times and it's the worst of times to be a musician today. It's the best of times because we have things like the internet, like YouTube, where we, it's, it's so easy to spread our music for free around the world. It's crazy. And recording technology is so cheap. Anybody can make an album. I made my album in my bedroom with GarageBand, a free program. It's crazy. It's amazing time to be a musician. But it's also maybe the worst of times because it's so cheap and because it's so readily available, everybody's making an album. It's no longer a big deal. And because YouTube and the internet's so free and so easy to use, everybody is is making videos. And so there's just this oversaturation and yes, we can learn so much, but it's just so easy to get lost in that mix. Uh, and so that, yeah, that is the million dollar question is, yeah, what is your unique voice? Um, and I mean, one thing I think it's important to remember, well, a couple things, you know, nothing is just like brand spanking new, never been thought of before. You know, I love how Steve Jobs labels creativity he says it's connecting things like that's it it's not waking up with some idea that no one has ever had it's kind of it's just this idea of like taking one thing that belongs over there trying it over here that is creativity that's what the the best the most creative creative people are doing they're just kind of putting things together that maybe didn't belong together in the first place Um, and a lot of that comes from trial and error. And so, yeah, we have these years of trial and error where we're trying different things and we feel lost or without direction. Um, but then we get some clarity. And so that's why, I mean, one of the big things I say to people is at first, if you, if you don't have that vision, that, that's kind of more specific drive, like say yes to everything at least once. Um, and I'm talking musically, of course, but you know, if you're, if you're a classical player and the jazz director says, hey, we need some sax player, you know, and it's like, I don't improvise, say yes, and you can figure it out later, you know, just try it once. Or you play, you, you know, you play, you just play the alto and someone says, hey, we need a Barry sax player in the quartet. I don't want to do, it. say yes. Or we, we need someone to play in the pit orchestra. Or have you ever tried writing a music, you know, just, just force yourself to to do new things. And, and hopefully this is a lifelong passion. And, you know, maybe I have like my voice now, but that might get old after a while. And already I've had the itch to do more with other musicians. And so I, I hope, I hope that I'm practicing what I preach and will still continue to say yes and take risks and try these new things. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's one, one thing. Another thing is, you know, there's no rush. You know, I didn't, if I found, if, if this solo sax thing is my voice, I didn't find this until I was about 30 years old. I'm 35 right now. There's the answer to how old I am. Uh, but yeah, you know, I felt pretty lost in my mid twenties, um, and could easily have stopped. Um, but 
just kind of sticking with it and trying to, and one of my ways of saying yes was taking, doing this teaching job and, and pursuing that. I didn't know what I was doing, but I said yes and I figured it out later. So you were, you were teaching for six years, right, at the university? Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like I got pretty fortunate, uh, kind of right out of grad school. I was thinking of going to New York City, like I said, to you know make it rich in a jazz band, um, not knowing how difficult that would be. And then an old professor of mine uh, f- who had m- moved to Abilene, Texas, reached out to me and said, hey, Derek, we're looking for a saxophone professor, someone to teach saxophone, classical jazz, music theory, jazz band, jazz combos. And I'm just like, I have no experience doing this uh but it's like i'll try it i mean i know they're gonna say no no, there's no way they're gonna want me but sure i'll try it and then i went down there and then it happened they hired me and you know i'm teaching music theory and i'm I'm like scared to death looking at my you know it was like second year music theory i'm looking at the book and it's like augmented six chords what are oh my gosh i german augmented Neapolitans. And then the next day in class, I'm like, hey, everybody, you know, we're going to be talking about German Augmented Six Chords. That's where we flat, you know, you, j- you just have to stay one day ahead of the students and they think you're the smartest person in the world, you know, and little do they know that I have no idea what the next chapter is about. Um, and there, there's a life lesson in that, you know, just taking these risks and, 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 and on, on stage being a performer, there's, there's, most of the time, I'm pretty nervous when I'm on stage or sometimes very nervous, uh, but it's a little bit of acting. It's a little bit of pretending that I know what I'm doing, even if even if I'm scared to death. It's this kind of fake confidence uh, of getting out there. Are you taking risks on stage or are you thoroughly prepared and you know what's going to come out? Okay, yeah. I mean, there there have been different times where it's where it's been more risk. I, I hope, I really hope and pray that my whole, throughout my career, I will always continue to take risks at some point because that is, of course, the only way we get better. You know, I listened to your uh, interview with Branford Marcellus and it's like, the only way you get better is failing a bunch of times in front of people. And you're not going to fail a bunch of times in front of people if you're not taking risks, if you're playing it safe. And for me, yeah, the only way that I've grown is by taking risks and working on new stuff that I don't know where it's going to lead um, and kind of pushing myself more and more, uh, sometimes in the practice room, but, but a lot of times on stage. Uh, you know, even five years ago, if you had told me I would be doing solo saxophone concerts, you know, up to 90 minutes by myself, acoustic saxophone, I would have said no way. Even five years ago, um, when I was working on this stuff, one, I would have thought you can't do enough different stuff with a saxophone to keep it interesting. At least you, Derek, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, if you were being true to yourself, that wouldn't be interesting enough for you. Um, So there's no way. uh, And then number two, I would have said, there's no way you could have the physical stamina, Derek, like just saxophone, like that's all you playing. But it was the the risk of, you know, at first doing a couple of solo things. You know, I had a couple songs written that I put on YouTube and, you know, maybe playing in front of a band as kind of an opener, one or two songs. But then later on hearing, oh, there's kind of a, well, one, like an open mic night. Okay, they want like three songs. And this is like no other sax players. This is like singer-songwriters. 
this was like a risk. Like I'm in a bar with other guitar players and I'm going to do a solo saxophone and just see what people think. Um, but then to, to longer things of like doing a math, you know, when, when a, a professor friend of mine invited me to come to their school and give a 45 minute clinic and play half the time. It's like, my gosh, I don't, can I, I don't have that much music. And so go to the practice room and just cram it in. And, and then later on realize, ah, oh, I wonder if I could do a festival, 45 minutes of, of solo. Sure. Yeah, sure. And then run home and practice for months leading up to it. And then can I do an hour? Can I do an hour and a half? Can I, you know, so, so that's, that's one of the ways I've been doing a risk is just kind of pushing myself. What more can I do? Another way I'm taking risks now is, is I, at the beginning of this, um, even though I, I, I have such a foundation in jazz, um, in kind of traditional jazz, the vast majority of what I play in my concerts is definitely written out. Um, you know, I, I have sheet music that I sell for my music that kind of proves this. This is how I play it, note for note. Um, but, and part of the reason is it's just, you know, it's it's very complex stuff and there's a lot going on and, you know, I can't think of that stuff fast enough. Um, and so I have to have it totally muscle memory to be able to perform this. Um, but a new risk that I'm taking is as I'm getting more and more comfortable with making these big leaps back and forth and doing rhythms, you know, various mixed rhythms, kind of the multiple things at the same time with the stomping and the ring. A new risk has been, can you actually improvise full tunes um, or intros to tunes or change it up from night to night and throw it in a little bit differently? Uh, you know, a, a future risk that I really hope that I can strive for is like someday, this is years down the line of doing one of these kind of like Keith Jarrett colon concert where it's just like, everything will be made up at the concert. Uh, like no, nothing pre-planned. That's like way down the road. Um, but that's somewhere, somewhere I would like to, to head eventually. That's kind of a risk I would like to pursue. <laughs> in your case, you've got uh, an album that's just come out. Do you approach an album in that way that you would expect that someone would listen to the whole album and therefore it needs to have a some variation and balance across the album? Or do you think people listen now just to the single track and they just want to hear one piece? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, because, yeah, the, the single piece thing is definitely the part where I'm doing these YouTube videos um, where I am just... And, and a lot of the song, the majority of the songs on my albums, I do have... They were first a video on YouTube. And that just comes because I think it's such a... Part of my shtick or whatever you want to call it is the idea that, uh, that, you know, that I'm doing it all live, no overdubbing. And so I want people to see that. Um, so, yeah, so that's why the video. But it, it's really, it is really important to me to have variety and contrast. I mean, that, that I would say is one of my biggest goals when I am writing pieces. Uh, and so, yeah, and so I, I do strongly hope that the album, yeah, presents new things. And also a big, 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 big place where this shows up and what motivates me is the live performance, maybe more than anything else. Um, as I'm kind of crafting my show, I really like to think about connecting with audiences. And that's another kind of thing that I really preach in these clinics that I do is this idea of like, if music is a language, 
if it's a communication, and I think we all agree with that, whatever genre we're in, that music is kind of a form of a language, you have to think of the audience. You have to consider what how they're experiencing. And it doesn't mean you have to dumb it down in any way, but you have to put yourself in those shoes and in in the audience shoes and think how would i respond to this you know would i like to, would i even listen to the music that i'm that i'm playing and that's that's a hard question for a lot of us to ask um would i actually listen to the music that i'm making uh and so that kind of guides a lot of my composing like do i actually like these chord progressions or am i just trying to sound complex um and that's and and for me, yeah, and and we yes, we all have different tastes, and and some people really would listen to this really complex atonal stuff, but that's just not me. Uh, I've tr- I tried to go down that path, you know. I, I tried to do kind of the typical path of you know, you start with the basic stuff, and then it slowly gets more and more atonal and dense, and I just couldn't really get to it. And then I kind of realized at a point I was like, I'm actually very okay with the fact that I'm not totally jiving with this because I kind of like that I can relate to to other people. I like I like the fa- it's kind of like I like the fact that my wife is not a professional musician and I can still relate to her, you know. I can play music that she likes. Um yes, I want to challenge myself sometimes and listen to more atonal or complex thing. And sometimes I want to challenge myself and try to write that stuff. But mostly, I'm just guided by what would I want to listen to. And yeah, a big, big thing is contrast. We need contrast. You know, that's what makes a good movie. It can't be all happy all the time. There has to be the conflict, the dissonance. But for me, it's also really important that there's resolution, at least sometimes. Um, but for the contrast, yeah, that I mean, that's the number one issue I think people have if they don't know my music, you know, when I'm trying to book festival gigs or share my music and i totally understand this because i would be the, have the same concerns of wait you play solo saxophone like like you're going to play for an hour you know are you going to use looping or no you're just you know and it's like here's the, here's a youtube video example and i could even see them being <clears throat> you know watching 3 minutes of one tune and being like okay that's cool for 3 minutes but how are you going to turn this into an hour? And so that's where I've just worked really hard. And, you know, sometimes I'm influenced by like a big influence of me, for me is Bobby McFerrin, the great vocalist uh, who, you know, he would do these solo concerts where he would get the audience involved. He would have humor. He would have contrast. He would talk a little bit. He would see lots of surprises. And so I'm always looking for different kind of creative ways, whether that's putting, you know, my iPhone in the bell of my saxophone and having my dad sing through my iPhone and playing a duet with him or beating the sax on the stage or, you know, hitting my saxophone with instruments, different ways of vocalizing while playing, trying to sing words while playing. You know, I'm, I'm doing this partly for to connect with with the audience trying to tell but also for me i'm doing this i want contrast i get bored pretty easily uh and so i'm trying to keep this interesting for me the hard thing with all this is and like this was today with my practice is a lot of times i want such variety that it's just it's just very tough and a lot of times i just kind of i just i get very frustrated because i feel like "Ah, this this song doesn't sound different enough and then i scrap it and i've begun I've like gone halfway with so many songs, compositions 
or I've gotten halfway and then I just throw it away because it's just, ah, that kind of sounds like the last one. That sounds like the last one. And so I'm. <laughs> do you keep those, those half written pieces? Do you keep them or do you really discard them? No, I, I mean, I do keep them there. A lot of times how I write is it's usually on just voice memos on my phone. I use this app Evernote where I can kind of categorize them. And so if I get an idea, you know, I pull up that app and then maybe I title it what, what, you know, what this idea is record, you know, it might be six seconds. It might be 30 seconds finish recording. If I have other ideas with that song, I'll put it under that same list, but then I'll, I jump around these days. I jump around a lot with my practicing what I'm working on. Um, that just kind of works best for me. So I don't get too bogged down. Uh, if I'm feeling uncreative, I move on to another song or a different tech. If I'm feeling really uncreative, I just work on scales and techniques because I don't have to really be creative. Um, but then if I'm in a more creative mood, I'll get those old tunes. And yeah, sometimes I do go back and pull those, those old things up. And sometimes it might turn into something. Um, but it just, yeah, I mean, I, I'd be so curious uh, asking you questions, Barry, about, you know, your writing style and, you know, cause I absolutely love what you're doing. And, you know, we, we obviously have some similarities, uh, with some of the composition stuff and, you know, I'm very curious on, on your compositional approach. Like, do you usually work like, you know, one tune at a time? Are you working on many things? Are you jumping around? <laughs> I, I like that you wish, you know, that you think I have an approach. That's good. <laughs> because <laughs> one of the pieces I was working on last year, actually, Philip Geis was there. He came out to Australia and I'd organized a concert for him in my chapel. And he, he played for a bit and I played just one piece and it was a new piece I was working on. And I get a bit funny sometimes when a piece is not quite complete about people recording it. Oh, yeah. And there was a lady there um, who loves to record all the concerts where I live and I just said to her, look, when I play, if you don't mind, just just don't record that one. Because I didn't want yeah. it out there because it was still oh, yeah. a work in progress. So I played this piece and I was really happy with it. It went really well and it was great. And uh, I didn't think about it again for a couple of weeks. And I came back to the piece. It was completely improvised. I came back to the piece a couple of weeks later and I couldn't remember it. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was gone. It's no. gone. It's seriously gone. <laughs> the greatest piece in the world and it's gone. Yeah. All because you told her and, not to record. Wow. <laughs> you know, I've since sat down and just in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I sat down and I tried to play what I thought it was and I I came up with some things, but it, it wasn't the same. And I, I feel like Sometimes improvisation is for the moment. I mean, true improvisation exists in a moment and it's designed for that. It's not supposed to be recorded and then listened back as a piece. It's, it's very spontaneous and it's a reaction to your audience. And I'm kicking myself a little bit, but at the same time, if I'm sort of respectful of that idea, then fine. The, the, those five minutes were a good five minutes and, and wow. it's gone. Yeah, that's a very noble thought. I would mostly be frustrated. <laughs> I don't find ideas easy to come by and they creep up on me and usually they come through improvising and bit by bit and of an idea forms and, and then I can work on it more in a compositional style, juggling things around. So often like you were describing, it's finding a sound or a technique or an effect or something that you can work with, a motive, and then develop it from there. But coming up with that original idea in the first place is the thing that happens rarely. And for me, I'm happy when an idea comes along and then I'll 
really work on it. I'm not a composer who sits down every day and writes for an hour and, you know, at the end of the week I've got okay. a new sonata and I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. that person. Um, I've got friends who are like that and that's yeah, not me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've tried that approach. I've had different mixing, mixed success with that with that stuff because there was a time where I was, it was more kind of for, for combo stuff, but I said, I'm going to write at least a little bit every day. And it was good for a while. I started... I feel like I came up with a lot of great ideas. Eventually, a lot of it was crap, uh, but there was some good stuff. But then after a few years later, I tried that same process and I was just I was just writing the same stuff I had written in the past. And it was just so hard to come up with something new. Yeah, a lot of times for me, the new stuff, it's it happens from mistakes. I'm kind of playing something and I make a mistake and it's like, oh, that was kind of cool. And so that's why, you know, I know I'm 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 jumping ahead because I've listened to your a lot of these interviews and one of your questions is about <laughs> mistakes and if <laughs> if they're good and oh my gosh mistakes are the best thing in the world <laughs> because that is the only way that I grow that's the only way that I do new stuff it's also the only way that I kind of yeah did start to do a voice because I think if I was if I was playing everything as I wanted to do, and if, if I was growing exactly as I wanted to grow, I would be that Sonny Rollins clone. And that's what I would be doing. And I would, that's, that's all. But it was because I couldn't do that. I couldn't play that, that it forced me to, yeah, to kind of tweak it around. And yeah, so mistakes are my best friend. Not many people compose, full stop. You know, most musicians play. I think, you know, especially in classical music, um, jazz, maybe there's a bit more, but still there's a lot of people who are playing someone else's music. And I always, I ask myself if that stems from early training, if just because it's not really taught or explored, therefore it doesn't develop and then it's a bit late and people don't get around to it. Um, Or ideas are so rare that, you know, there's just not that many to go around. I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I... I wouldn't say that I come up with ideas through mistakes, but one really weird thing is if I've been traveling somewhere, nearly every piece I've written has been written when I've been somewhere else other than at home. Really? And I don't know if it's just being in a different environment or being exposed to different things, but or I have more time, I don't know. Because I struggle when I'm in places. I like kind of need to be home. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, everybody's different. Wow. I do want to talk about your tour, but I'm very curious. First of all, what's your typical sort of practice look like? And then could you compare how your practice is when you're on tour? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my ideal practice when I am not on tour, you know, if I have the ideal, I ideally would play three hours uh, at least. Uh and it would be a little bit of long tones. That's just to kind of remind my body to breathe from the diaphragm. That's kind of the main reason I use long tones. Uh, going into some scale things, um, which might be a finger thing, but a lot of times it's kind of an improvisatory thing. I want to get better with this. A lot of times I'm doing scales now with my ring and stomping work. So trying to get more comfortable with that, kind of doing two things at the same time. Uh, and then that might morph into doing, uh, doing some, working on some technique, 
Uh, and I'm, I'm always trying to work on something new, uh, some new extended technique, whether it's something that exists before, like the slap tiny, double tiny, or trying to explore and kind of come up with something new. Like today I was, wor- recently I've been working on this uh, triple tonguing, like a true triple tonguing, not taka, ta taka, ta taka, or ta taka, but it's hard to, to, to say it, but like a uh, doing kind of flap tonguing up and down on the reed with your tongue, which is can get very bloody, by the way. Uh, but doing a down, cut up on the reed. Down, cut up, down, if that makes sense. Kind of a circular motion. That was very exciting. But just today, I was working on another thing of trying to do kind of like the similar sound effect of a slap tonguing, triple tonguing, doing kind of a slap, cut, and then a ram. It, yeah, it's it's hard to just say it over the over the microphone, but I'm always, always trying to work on some new technique. Um, and a lot of times that will then speaking of composition, turn into a composition of like, Oh, how can I use this in a way? Or sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes the composition, I'm like, man, I just wish I could do ah, stronger triplets with this percussive thing. I wonder if there's a way to kind of get that sound. And that would sometimes then create a technique or something a twist of that but so yeah so some kind of technique working on uh then throw in um the the compositional part that's a big part of my practicing i'm always composing with the saxophone so always kind of working on new tune ideas or old tune ideas trying to piece these that's a big big part of my practice these days is just writing writing music um, and then lately I've been doing a lot of ear training. Uh, I just, I've always thought I have had bad ears, um, for jazz, but also for classical, just to help make it easier to memorize stuff and just to play what I want to play. And so I'm kind of making my own play along tracks, um, with this, it's called the, uh, I real B app, um, where I'm kind of making my own chord progressions at random and listening back. And can I figure it out by ear trying to do songs by ear? Um, that's another kind of long-term goals. It's always a mixture of kind of these short-term goals and very long-term goals. Another very long-term goal is this idea of improvising while doing ring rhythms and stomping things while mixing in, jumping down and slap tying the, the roots of chords and then improvising on top, finding different ways of doing that. It's a very long-term process, but that's the stuff that kind of keeps me coming back to practicing, keeps me getting excited about it just slowly slowly noticing this progress. So what happens then when you're away from home, you're on the road? I mean, especially the last nine months. Yeah, that's tough. So on this tour, it was actually kind of nice in some some of the days. So my wife drove the RV a lot and I would actually go back to the bathroom and just practice there, <laughs> close the door. Uh, and I would I'd put a little mouth guard on the, my upper teeth for all the bumps in the road and I would practice while she was driving on the freeway. And that was like, that was awesome. Cause it was just like killing two birds with one stone. I'm on my way to the gig and I'm actually practicing. Um, and then I would, I, I, I have to force myself if I, even if I have a gig that night and even though those gigs are tiring and master classes physically and emotionally tiring, I kind of force myself. I have to still practice earlier in the day or leading up to it. Um, to some extent, a lot of times I'll put on a very soft, extra soft read uh, so I can just practice. And, and a key thing for me, it's 
I have to force myself to work on new stuff all the time. It would be so easy, like with this tour where I did 75 concerts of mostly the same music. It did evolve as the tour went on. I could work on all these pieces forever. You know, I think a lot of us could say that about, you know, some of these really complex pieces, whether it's someone else wrote it or you wrote it. You'll never play it perfect. You could just, you could practice it to death uh, to make it better and better. I could do that. But if I do that, I'm just going to stay the same and I'm not going to grow as fast as I want to. And so I usually, even right before a gig, I'm working on other stuff. I'm trying to work. Yes, if there's a new piece that I'm playing, I'll, I'll definitely work on that because it's always terrifying for me the first few times I play a new piece. It always feels like a train wreck in my mind and the performance. But otherwise, the stuff that I have down, I'm working on other stuff, just trying to keep pushing ahead. And yes, when I am on the road, there definitely is not as much time. I don't usually get the the full three hours. And so it's a that's that's a constant frustration of dealing with that. Now I've got some questions which I probably really haven't asked anybody else because you're so sorry you've got no idea what I'm gonna ask. Because I was prepared. I would listen to so many of these interviews. <laughs> One of the things that fascinates me about what you're doing is you're really taking an active role and a responsibility for your own career. You're not relying on a university salary to get by while you do gigs on the side. You're publishing your own music, you're writing your own music, you're organising tours. You're, you're taking your music in your own hands. And I'm very fascinated by that. And I think there's a lot we can learn from you in some of the methods that you use to be able to do that. Mm, okay. One of, perhaps one of the first things is you mentioned that you sell your music and I saw on your website yeah. you have a, a web store where you, you sell your scores. Mm-hmm. What's it like now as you travel around and, you know, instead of a kid getting up to play maybe a piece that you played when you were a student, uh-huh. now they're standing up and they're playing one of your tunes. Yeah, I mean, one, it's a little bit surreal because I feel like this has happened very fast and I am still at this point where I sometimes have to to pinch myself because, you know, this idea that some people are kind of feeling like they can learn from me or, you know, that, that a school, a conservatory in Italy will, you know, pay for me to come out there and teach them for three days. You know, you know, at times I feel like I'm definitely not worthy. Uh, most times that is, uh, and that I'm just kind of faking it, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to share whatever I have learned. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely happy to do my best to kind of inspire people to think about the saxophone differently. Um, and it does seem like there's a lot of kind of younger people that are, that are into what I'm doing and, you know, similar to, to your music, because I I hear uh, a lot of students, of course, playing and of course, professionals playing your awesome pieces. And, and a lot of times they will play your piece. Like in, in Italy, someone played rock me and cuckoo for me with, with the idea that, okay, Derek also does extended techniques. Do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> um, and first of all, I'm like, <laughs> I can't slap tongue that fast for rock me. You know, I was actually working on that today. I was like, man, 16th and I was at 132 that's fast <laughs> I kind of cheat and I do kind of a, a slap uh, slap ram or slap and an inverted slap together to make a double tongue but anyways that's another story um, 
But yeah, it, it is fun when someone actually picks one of my pieces. It's funny. I haven't heard. There's a couple of mine that are still, I haven't heard anybody attempt them. They also involve rings. And so maybe they just don't want to maybe smartly so damage their instrument. Um, I'm waiting to see that if that will start to happen. Um, although there was a, there was a jazz student that had a ring and, and he, he was kind of doing a little bit with that. So that was kind of fun to see that. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's it's interesting and, and it's fun and I'm of course very honored that someone would would choose to kind of try to pursue any of my stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what more to say about that. <laughs> Is there a reason that you chose to release the music yourself and not go through a traditional publisher? One is because I don't know what I'm doing and just <laughs> trying to, <laughs> to, to do to do that. And I don't know who to go through. Number two, I of course I mean, I am in this generation of kind of totally just doing it yourself. And we, you know, we figured out YouTube and to make videos ourselves, we make albums ourselves. It's just kind of in that age of you. It's another one of these best of times, worst of times. It's the worst of times because most labels and booking agents aren't interested in people anymore unless they're full time making lots of money. But it's the best of times because, like I said, there's just all this gear that's just so easy to use and there's just all this information about how to do it. And so we can become we can become videographers and we can become graphic designers to make our own websites. And we kind of have to. Um, and so that was just another extension of that. Uh, I guess I'll just sell it myself. You know, I use this this website, Bandzoogle, where you you just get all of the money of anything you sell, whether it's digital or whatever. And so... I was, I, I've talked to some other people that are publishing stuff. I mean, I'd be interested to hear you maybe outside of this interview of like, you know, percentage of royalties, what you get, but it seems like it's usually pretty low and at least, you know, I'm able to promote stuff by myself. I mean, that's the best thing for me about YouTube. I would not have a career if it wasn't for YouTube. You know, I get a tiny bit of money from the ads, even with like, more than millions of views, you still just get a tiny bit of money. Um, but the the promotion of that, I mean, the fact that people around the world could be exposed to my music has single-handedly given me a career because otherwise I would just be playing in a, low, a small city and it wouldn't get outside of that. Uh, and so because I had a little bit of confidence of I can spread my music online. People, sax players are kind of starting, some of some of them are starting to know who I am. So maybe that's enough to actually just sell it from my website versus having to put it all on the publisher to get out the word. Kind of same thing with a label. You know, I can make my own videos advertising for my album um, and my tour and my music uh, that I don't have to spend the thousands of dollars or only get a tiny percentage to get that word out. So, you know, I, I have had second thoughts about, I'm, I know a lot more people w- would buy it if it was through a publisher. Um, but, or I, I think that, but, but I do get a hundred percent of, of that sale. So I'm happy with that for now. The website provider charges subscription fee for that service, right? Correct. Yeah. So you pay a small monthly fee, but you keep, you keep all the proceeds after that. Correct. Yep. And for me, yeah, it's just totally worth it because I mean, that's, that's everything. I, I mean, I, when I, when I 
talk about kind of this music business or entrepreneurship. I, I, I referenced this. I don't remember who it was, but it was a, a, a professor at Berkeley. And I, this was listening to a kind of a music business podcast. And they mentioned this professor saying, if you want to make it in the music industry today, it takes 10% craft. Like that's you're practicing your music. 90% business. And first of all, I'm like thinking, okay, so I'm practicing three to five hours a day. That's 10%. What? No, that doesn't add up. Okay. And maybe that's a little over-exaggeration, but it takes way more thought into that business side of things than most of us think and more than most of us want to do, of course, and way more than, than, any univer- than most universities are teaching. Most colleges are not talking about that stuff. It's only about how to sound better. But once again, if music is a communicational language, you know, we actually, hopefully we have something to say and we want to actually share that with people. And so you have to put hard, hard thought and hours and time into how can I get this out there? What am I needing to do? And I, I did notice on your interviews, a lot of times, uh, the people you were talking to, a lot of the professors would say when you would ask about a website or social media, they would often say, ah, yeah, that's kind of my weak point. You know, I, I haven't been updating that. And that's like, <laughs> the sad thing is like, that's almost like more important than the music. If you want to, especially if you want to make a career out of that, uh, and you want to spread that music. I wish it was the other way around. I wish it was only about the music, the art. Um, and yes, that is important, but there are a lot of musicians that aren't nearly as good or whatever, but they have slick presentation, they have the best videos, and they are getting their music out, and we can learn from them. We might have something different to say or want to say it to different people, but we can learn from Justin Bieber. You know, He's connecting with a lot of people. Uh, and like I said, it might be a totally different message or different people, but he's connecting and I wish I could connect with, with that many people, you know? So important things to think about. I'm sure you know about this, but there's a great article called 1000 true fans. Oh, I, I, I know that idea. Yes. It's Kevin Kelly wrote the article and he said, you don't need billions of, of fans. Yeah. What you really need are 1000 people who are so dedicated to what you do that everything you release, they purchase Everything you do, they want to know about. And from there, you can build. They market for you. Exactly. Yeah, they spread the word. And that's a concept that's not just in music, but it's applicable in many areas. The older school model of being a professor and a lot of academic music happens within the university circle. So you'll have a university teacher touring other universities to play for other saxophone students. I have a feeling especially based on the number of views you're getting on YouTube, that your music is going out to a wider audience. That must be bringing knowledge of the saxophone to people who really perhaps didn't know what it was capable of before. Uh, yeah, I, I hope so. And I, I, I think so. Uh, of course, I would always like it to be more and faster. Um, but yeah, and I mean, it, it is true that I did start and it was mainly sax players, you know, that were passing my videos. And, and I often do tell people, you know, if you do want to kind of, one, if you want to kind of find your voice, but if you want to kind of make a dent out there, 
one of the key things at first is like getting really specific. Don't go too broad. You're not going to please everybody. You know, if you try to to just be too generic, it's it's not going to touch anybody and it's going to get lost in the mix. But it's when you go really, really, really specific that, you know, the world is, yes, it's it's getting smaller all the time because of social media, but it's still a big world and there's a lot of people out there. And if you if you get into a really specific niche, like the world is so big yet so connected that those people will find you, I think, if you're really passionate about it and really specific. Those people, there are other people that are just like you and really speak. Yeah, there are like a thousand other people that that could get that passionate. Um, but then, yeah, hopefully, maybe you can break out of that or or maybe not. But um, yeah, there has been a point where, you know, I, at first it was all about just, yeah, saxophones. And a lot of my videos, you know, these saxophone tutorials and they're getting more and more complex and technical um, into these advanced techniques. But then these other videos, like what's these cover songs and whatnot, yeah, it's definitely, I would say, more non-sax players than sax players. Um, and that's and that's exciting. And 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 hopefully, yeah, it is it it is that kind of core group that's helping to spread the word, or at the concerts they bring their parents or they bring their friends from band who don't play saxophone, um, and they carpooled together. And that's really fun. And I always tell people, you know, when I'm if I'm doing like CD signing afterwards, and I, I'll ask them, "Are you a musician?" And they'll be like, "Yeah, I play the trumpet." And I'm like, "That's awesome! Like that means even more that you don't play the saxophone because you're here because you, you know, it's not just that you want to like learn how to play the saxophone better, but you you actually like the music for the music's sake. And you know, that's a whole other story of you know. Sometimes I get you know, it's we want to impress people, but but most of all, I really do deep down want it to be more about the music and writing good music, good chord progressions, good melodies. Um, and then this is just the way I showcase it. Um, but that's also the stuff I think that will touch non-sax players where it's not just about the technique, of course. Um, and of course, that's a big discussion in I know the classical saxophone world of all these extended techniques and are they are they doing what they want, what we want them to do? Are, are we reaching people with them? Are we communicating with them? Or is it more just kind of this weird fascination of just our own family kind of showing little tricks that we can do? Um, and I can sometimes get caught up into that. Uh, but hopefully, it can go beyond that. I mean, that's the dream, I think, for, for a lot of us. Do you think that video you made, I think it's, is it Stand By Me? It's, yeah, I mean, my viral uh, one, yeah. <laughs> it's had an, a really lot of views. Do you think if a saxophone player, any musician, takes something that can hit a wider audience, something like that, uh, as an example, do you think that can then feed to your more self-composed pieces, do you think that can draw people in to help discover you? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, some people might take that approach just for that purpose like and that's fine as a business approach of thinking i don't really like this song but it's it just came out on the top 40 i'm going to record you know there are some people that are recording 
the hit songs as soon as they come out and they're getting millions of views because all these young kids that hear that song, they want to hear it being played on the saxophone. And, you know, whether they like the song or not, it's a, it's effective for kind of getting their name out. That's for sure. Um, for me, you know, there's maybe a, a little bit of that where it's like, yeah, it would be fun to do some cover songs because I know it's fun to hear songs that I know. But a lot of times I, I still try to ground it in what I actually get passionate about. Um, and so I do, I did stand by me cause I really like that song. I love that one, six, four, five progression. I could do that all day long. It's just, that's just a part of my life, my background, hearing the, that chord progression and it, it will always be with me. It, you can try to get rid of that stuff, but it will, that it's, it's nostalgic. What you listen to when you're a teenager will stay with you your whole life and it will touch you in a way that music you hear later won't. And so I am learning to fully embrace that. Uh, And it's when I fully embrace that, that then I notice that it kind of comes alive and other people connect with that. So, yeah. So for me, it's, it's kind of a mix of, yeah, I do think about, yeah, this might reach some people, but I also want it to be something that I still really enjoy. And for, for me, that, that tune Stand By Me, another thing was just the challenge of like, can I actually sing a song with words? And that song worked well with kind of the spacing. Um, and so that's a big part. Now, there are moments where, so since then, I have done a few other cover songs, a few other songs with words more it's been mostly original tunes. Like my first album was maybe three quarter cover songs. This new album is maybe one, one fourth cover songs because I'm just enjoying writing new stuff. Yes. If I was really all about maxing out the views, I would just probably just pursue cover songs because that will always trump an original tune. Almost always. Um, And there's a lot of really successful instrumental groups like, um, Lindsey Sterling, two cellos, and they pretty much almost all do cover songs. Um, and I, so I know if I want, if I really wanted to go that, if that was the most important thing was getting more views, more followers, I would do that. But staying, I want, I want first and foremost to kind of stay true to myself. And I want, because I want to do this for the long haul. I want to be excited about this. I want to sustain this career. And so, doing something original or just whatever I want to do in the moment trumps doing, doing it just because I think it'll get more views. And I think in general, that's a good idea because yeah, you don't want, we don't want to become jaded musicians that are doing it just for the money because you could get another job. That's much easier if that's what it was about. So you've, you've talked about YouTube. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about some other social channels and, what platforms do you find give you the best reach for the message that you're trying to get across? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, YouTube is has been by far the most important, and that's because it's the visual and audio element of what I do. It's, I mean, it's actually my art out there. That is what I make. That's what it is. Um, and like I said, it has the video. You know, I'm on Spotify, but that's that's it's just harder because I think there is an important element of people seeing that I'm doing. And then that almost seems, I don't know. I, I've struggled with that at a time of like, why should it matter that, that you see what I'm doing? Um, shouldn't it just be about the music? 
But but then I come back to once again, I think back to myself and what I like. And I am a visual creature, just like the majority of people. And I like watching things. Uh, and so that's an important thing to me. And so I'm fine with that. Anyways, okay, so that's YouTube. I'm on Facebook just because everybody's on Facebook. And that just is a number one way for people these days to connect. Um, Facebook is not my first and foremost. Like that's not always staying the most current. More current than that, more important to me, I use Instagram and I just send pretty much whatever I post goes to Facebook. Um, and that, that, yeah, if in a perfect world, I would have, you know, 50 hours a day to do all this stuff. And I would just love posting things all the time. And I would post different content onto Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But we also realize, yeah, we have limits. And like I said, we need to sustain this career. And that is first and foremost, the most important thing that trumps everything is sustainability. So if, if it's just too much to try to post something every day, don't do it. You know, you can try it once, but if it's going to make you less, less excited, less motivated, you got to find your limits. Yes. We want to push ourselves a little, of course, on that business side, and hopefully we can find something that we like. And that to me is Instagram. You know, it's easy to take photos. It's, fun taking photos of just, you know, whatever I'm doing or of the crowd or the audience or, uh, or the gig or something goofy that, 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 that can be relatively fun for me. And so that's why I prefer Instagram to Twitter. Um, you know, having to come up with witty things all the time. Uh, so yeah, so the Instagram that feeds into, into Facebook, um, and then YouTube. And yes, I, I could talk a lot about social media. I have a very strong love-hate relationship with social media. Sometimes I'm more in the mood than not. I also have this, this, this stupid thing where I personally cannot... I can't just look at other stuff on social media. I can't go down that rabbit hole of just like clicking on all these YouTube videos. I can't just scroll on Facebook and Instagram. I just get into a weird funk if I do that. Uh, I get very moody. <laughs> you could say depressed. Uh, and, you know, I could talk about why that is. You know, it's, it's this, this whole phenomenon of we're all posting our perfect lives, all the best things, you know. And so we see everyone else's lives. And even if I'm, I'm on tour in Italy, yet I see one person saying, oh, I had this interview in Downbeat. And I'm like, oh, I didn't get, I didn't get that. You know, and then I'm feeling bad about you know it's so stupid it's so petty i hate i hate to admit that stuff but i'm human and <laughs> we are always comparing ourselves and so so that's one of these things where i have learned for me to sustain this career i need to not look at these social media sites i'm going to post my stuff and then get off uh and some people might say derek that's kind of selfish you know the best way to do it is you know you have to promote other people's music you share their videos you I don't do that. I just, I just, I just can't. I'm weak. If I, if I do that too much, it takes more time. I just, I, yeah, I'm kind of opening myself up here, but uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I'm just like, I have to do what works for me and I'll just get, I'll get negative. I'll start wasting time if I'm on there. So I have to do what works for me, which is like post an Instagram photo whenever I have a gig, maybe once before, once afterwards, send it to Facebook maybe every couple months put out a video on YouTube to stay relevant. It also motivates me to, to keep writing new stuff. And then that's it. I have to, I have to move on. That's how I sustain 
this. <laughs> is your personal website perhaps different to that? Because you seem to use, use it as a documentation of, of what you're doing, a history almost. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I left out the website, um, DerekBrownSack.com. Yeah, that's something, you know, I've just read online professionals saying social media in, in one way will come and go, but your website is the one thing that you have total control over. Um, and so that is important to keep that up. Uh, and yes, I actually do make money from my website from selling these digital downloads and sheet music. It, it actually is possible to make money. And that's also part of the only reason I can say that is also because I make the recordings really cheap. Uh, I mean, I, I feel good about them, but like I said, I made it with GarageBand in my bedroom. Um, if I spent $10,000 on a recording, no, I would not be making money. But so, so that is important. Also, when, you know, when people are searching for you online, that website is important to see for a festival or a university. And it's important that that looks professional. Um, like I said, sometimes that's even more important than the actual music, as sad as that is. It's, it's so important that you have professional photos, that you keep it up to date. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I have to figure out kind of the next route to go because this tour has ended. I, you know, I had a separate website for that. Um, and now I have this baby on the way in a month and things are going to really change there. But, um, but yeah, it's really important to keep that stuff current. And yeah, that's the little bit part of the job that, you know, we always, everybody has part of a job that they don't like to do. And yes, you have to do those things. And, and that might be the business side. Hopefully you can find ways to, to enjoy it. Like you can get into just basics of graphic design and look at what makes this image better than that one. You can get into the basics of photography and buy a decent camera and enjoy like, oh, wow, I can make that background really blurry in the person in focus. And, and, you can, and that's kind of a key is trying to actually enjoy this stuff. Um, but yeah, at, at some point you have to do a little bit that you don't like to do. But then at another point, you can reach a boundary and say, you know what? I'm, I have priorities and if I can't do this today, you know, it's more important that I stay healthy and, and stay creatively fulfilled and keep going. So it's, yeah, it's just a balance of all that. Balance is a key word. I was thinking about your approach to sort of the combination between composition and improvisation. So you're trying to lay down something regular, but improvise over the top of it. So your mind is doing two different things. Yeah. Do you feel in other aspects of your life, the administrative side of just keeping everything running, Ooh. do you find that you're able to do those processes where you can have something ticking over regularly, maintaining something maybe mundane in a sense, but necessary, and at the same time keep those creative ideas flowing? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that analogy. Uh, I've never thought of it that way, of comparing it to, to that idea of improvising over the top of something else, two things. That's great. I'm going to use that uh, <laughs> in the future. But yeah, uh, I guess I have to do that. And it's it's never easy. That's why when I mentioned my practicing routine lately, I mentioned that I'm kind of skipping around a lot. And that's because if I end up just doing one thing too much, you know, the balance gets out of whack. That means you're ignoring other things. But also sometimes this. I've heard of this technique called the Pomodori technique, where it's this, it's kind of a productivity 
technique. And it's called that because it's like this tomato timer that somebody had that like, it's like 10 or 15 minutes long and you set it and it's this physical object. And it's like, if you're practicing something or let's say you're, you're doing something on your website and it's like, when, when that thing goes off, when that alarm goes off after 15 minutes, no matter what, I am going to change and move on to the next thing. Uh, and, and yes, there are, there are different times where I have, might have a different length of time for that, or that might be more effective or not. But in general, it, it works for me because if I start working on, so let's say I'm working on the website or, or trying to book gigs and I'm looking up different emails, soon enough, an hour goes by, two hours go by, maybe three hours go by, and my energy level is dropping by the minute. And all of a sudden, I realize I am drained. I do not want to practice. I don't want to do anything. Yet, had I set some kind of a timer or some kind of limit that even if things are going well, when that timer goes off, I am switching and it's just going to keep me motivated going on to the next thing. Uh, and so I think that can relate to practicing, but also to real life of, of kind of making sure that, yeah, you're, you're doing multiple things during the day. And yeah, there's different types of people. Some people work better in, in, with the different ways. Uh, but for me, that's kind of an important thing. So that might mean thinking about my day. The first thing when I wake up after breakfast and everything practice when I kind of have the most energy for the day. Uh, that's really important not to do the business stuff. If I do the business stuff first, that usually drains me. And often that has to do with the fact that, you know, I send out a bunch of emails and then I get a couple back and they're like, you know, they're, they're rejections or something. You know, I just got a couple today that were like, no. And I'm like, you know, and you feel bad as a person that they're, you know, they hate you as a person, even though they don't, but it brings you down. And all of a sudden your practicing is less motivated. So yeah, you have to figure out how to kind of organize your day. And, and a key, key thing is just figuring out yourself. What works for you? Do you work better in small chunks? Do you work better having a break between that, doing your practicing and shifts, doing your business stuff in between at the end before, doing 30 minutes every day or doing a big chunk. That's, that's so key is to figure out how you tick um, what works for you because yeah, you got to, you have to do all those things. And the modern musician today, the best of times, the worst of times, we have to do everything ourselves. Uh, and so you gotta, you gotta figure out how to do that. You know, I really like this concept of the idea of priority because Priority is a singular word and it, it's not supposed to have a plural. Really? Because a priority is the most important thing at that time. You can't have two priorities. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You can only have one. We're always juggling many things, but something has to be the most important at that particular time. And I like what you're describing that you set aside some time to do that particular important thing. And then you move on to the next important thing. The first one perhaps is forgotten about then, it's put aside and you're focused on the next one. But you're not juggling two things at the same time or three things or 10 things. Yeah. You know, you, you're sort of staging your day or you're stepping out just like you would in practice. You know, you, you don't play one scale and then you move on to an improvising and then back to a piece and, you know, you, you tend to break it up into a... Though so sometimes <laughs> that might happen and then, yeah, but that's a sign of very bad practice. Yeah. <laughs> now I've got some... Rapid fire questions. Oh boy, I was waiting for this. <laughs> Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? Yes. 
<laughs> well, I don't know a few, but okay. Here's, I love this thought about music and this relates to all art. For me, there are two types of music in this world. Good music and bad music. And I love them both. So it's this idea that we have music that is meant for artistic purposes, to challenge you, to, you know, to stretch our minds. And then there's music just for dancing or background or just to have a good time. And I, you know, I like both of those reasons for music and want to incorporate both of those. And the other way I like to say it is sometimes, you know, I, I, I enjoy pursuing, you know, like the taste of wine or a fine steak or an aged cheese, something that a kid would, would be grossed out by. But, you know, we, over the years, you, you refine your taste and that's awesome. But then sometimes I just want candy. Sometimes I just want McDonald's. And so, yeah, I love them both. <laughs> if you just had one piece of music that you could play from now on, what would it be and why? Okay, <laughs> when I've heard you ask this question to others, I noticed that you say the word could instead of had to. Because <laughs> uh, if I could, I definitely would not play one song uh, just till the end. Uh, like I said, I get pretty restless. And, and like if I'm, if I'm playing the same music, like if I'm still ending every concert with Stand By Me, you know, my, my hit song, I just feel like to me, that's like, I haven't grown or I haven't challenged myself. Yes. It's fun to bring it back sometimes. And it's fun to see audiences like kind of perk up and, Oh, oh, I love this version of this. That's fun. But for me, yeah, it's, it's more important to kind of keep moving on, see what's next. So I'm going to cop out and just say that. (laughs) Actually, most people, and I'd probably include myself, we all feel obliged to answer the questions we get asked. And you know, okay, sometimes it's okay just to say, I don't want to answer that. Yes. <laughs> Except if you're on my podcast and then everyone has to answer everything, right? <laughs> no. Okay. If you just had one hour to practice, just one, how would you spend your time? Oh, oh my gosh. Whew. Only one, I would say, exploring the instrument which would mean just no rules, just like being a preschooler in a room with toys, flipping the mouthpiece upside down. What does that do? Sucking in on the instrument. What does that do? What does it do if you hit the instrument on this side? What does it do if you pound it here? What does it do if you scream into the horn? And a lot of that turns into kind of compositional things for me. And 90, 99% is absolute crap that comes out uh but there's the possibility of that of that little gem and usually it's a tiny tiny speck of something new that usually the next in but but that oh my gosh that gets me so excited if there's the hint the taste of something that could possibly maybe be a different way of playing the saxophone or a different way of getting sound. And usually the next, the very next day, I'm like, that was kind of a stupid idea, but that's kind of, uh, that's the, that's the drive for me. What else, what else can I do on this thing and somehow make it musical? Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone? 
This one's tough. So, because obviously there's a classical world and a jazz world. I've mentioned that I've always felt somewhere trapped between. A lot of times people think, a lot of times people outside of the saxophone just assume that I'm jazz because they see a saxophone and they think jazz. A lot of times I think though I'm maybe more in the classical world um, because um, I'm writing compositions. I'm using extended techniques that jazz musicians often ignore and classical musicians are getting into. Um, but yeah, I, I, I often find it, I often find it kind of sad that the wor- those two worlds seem so divided sometimes. I mean, not always. Um, and I, I could talk a lot more about that. I know this is the rapid fire section and I'm failing at that. Uh, but it's interesting. I just have to say this. It's interesting. Like with this 50, 50 tour with visiting these universities, a lot of times I would be brought in, maybe the classical professor would bring me in and the jazz side would stay far away. Wouldn't even introduce themselves. And then sometimes it'd be the opposite. The jazz person would bring me in and then the classical studio professor would stay far away. And so it's like this weird, yeah, I guess my music is a little divisive. Uh, but all I can say is, you know, you gotta, you gotta make a stand somewhere. And sometimes if you are divided, I mean, yeah, you might, if you break out of genres, you're going to make some people unhappy, but you're also going, you have the chance of something new and something fresh that might attract other people. All I have to say, uh, contributors of the saxophone. I mean, I could say the big names like, you know, I would pr- like in the classical world, I'd probably say Sigurd Rasher because he was responsible for, s- I mean, so many pieces were dedicated to him. And to me, the legacy of music is more in the song itself, which is usually, yes, it takes a great player to make a great song. But I sometimes think that maybe the composition is the most important thing because especially uh, in classical music, you know, if it gets played by multiple people, it's that it's the it's the composition that that lasts. And so, to me, Sigurd Rascher, you know, I mean, it's just even if I'm not a huge fan of the sound idea, or you know, the using older mouthpieces, or I would like a kind of a, a different tone, you know, just doing my knowing my history that so many of these important pieces were dedicated to him, that is really important in the saxophone. And that's why I think, you know, something like, like what you're doing, I mean, your music, Barry is like, I think it's like changing the saxophone world. So many people are so excited about this stuff and that's going to be remembered so long. And I think it's going to be remembered more than the people who played it. And so, yeah, so you're up there. I mean, for real. And and in in the jazz world, it's a little different because of the improvisation. It's almost like each player is the composer. Uh, and so maybe it's a little different um, where I'd kind of maybe go more down. Yeah, like saying Charlie Parker completely changed the language. And, you know, we still call what he did modern jazz. Uh, even though that was in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we call that modern jazz, and it was made so long ago, but it was just so ahead of his time and changed it. But then I, I could also talk about, you know, if we're talking about connecting with, you know, this question could go different ways. You know, as much as I, most people, a lot of people don't like his stuff, and I, I I don't listen to it. I'm not a huge fan, but like Kenny G was able to reach so many millions of people and 
his music is as much as we might be sick of it. It is the soundtrack to so many people's lives. Yes, maybe sometimes in elevators or in grocery stores, but in weddings and funerals. Oh my gosh. If, if someone played my music at a wedding or funeral, I would be like, I made it. Like I did something right. I connect, you know, it's, and so I can't even ignore Kenny G as a, as a contributor, you know? Um, yeah, it's just a mix. And I guess that shows kind of my, my mix that I, I refuse to kind of pick one of those genres between classical jazz pop. Perfect. Thank you. Thank yeah, you very much. You're welcome. Now you've played, what was it, 75 performances over those uh, 50 states? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. So you must have a routine here. What's the most important thing that you do before you walk on stage to really give you the biggest chance of playing at your best? Yeah, I, I love how Cliff Lehman, who he, I went to his school, um, I love how he said before his concerts, he wants to welcome in the adrenaline. Uh, and I love that idea. And I, I, in my best moments, I try to do that. I, I often say, instead of saying I am nervous, which I usually am, I say, I turn it and, and I twist it on its head and I say, I am excited. And so, you know, I got the jivers and instead of being like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. It's just, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This is awesome. And I kind of, and, and like Cliff said, he likes to have five minutes at least by himself. Yes, you don't always get that. That's pretty key to just kind of clear my mind. Um, I'm not always necessarily thinking, okay, I'm going to do this song, that song, or like kind of running through the stuff. But I just need a, just a few moments to be like, this is happening. This is real. This is serious, but it's also really fun. And maybe I'm kind of jumping a little bit if there's no one around doing some jumping jacks. Uh, and a key, key thing for me I mentioned this earlier, this idea of like kind of fake confidence. I said that kind of like when I was teaching um, this idea of like pretending I knowing what I'm pretending. I'm no, I know what I'm doing. Um, even if I don't, a key thing for me is like if, if I'm introduced at a, a concert or whatever on stage, I often like to run out onto the stage at least a little bit, like jog out a little bit. And that's this idea of like, I'm turning this this nervous energy into excitement. I'm just going to pretend that I'm so excited to be out there that I'm like running out there. And yes, it's almost kind of acting, uh, but it kind of is acting in a way that becomes you're you're making it become reality and you're turning it into excitement. Imagine if all of these years would actually been mislabeling nerves. Yeah, maybe we have. What we thought was nervousness was actually excitement or anticipation. Yeah. You know, and if we if we yeah. replace those words with something more positive, maybe it would change our state of mind. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I another I keep coming back to what Cliff was saying, but he said he said people pay big bucks for adrenaline, like they they pay money to go to amusement parks to scare themselves, and so it's like I'm a professional sax player. I don't you know I don't have to pay to do that. I get paid to do that. So it's like yeah, just flipping that on its head. This is living the life, man. This is doing it, living the dream. You look pretty fit and healthy. Is there something that you do that either consciously, you know, on purpose to maintain your physical ability to play the saxophone, but also to maintain your health so that you can enjoy a long career? Yeah, I do solo 90-minute saxophone concerts where I'm stomping and <laughs> hitting rings on my saxophone and jumping around on the stage. Uh, no, uh, on this tour, it was kind of 
cool. One of the good ideas my wife had was getting a gym membership to this very popular national chain called Planet Fitness, where pretty much in every city they have these. One, it was a, it was a chance to get a shower everywhere uh, if we didn't want just the RV shower um, in these gyms. But two, it was you know we were actually working out a couple times a week. And now that I'm back in a mobile or a, a stationary place, I need to remember that that I felt a lot better when I was actually exercising. Um, and I'm still working on the whole eating healthy thing. That's something where I still, I kind of (laughs) deny that I'm in my thirties and I'm still at that point where I'm just like wishing I was living in this life in my early twenties where you could eat a whole pizza and it didn't matter, you know, in college. But I do notice that that stuff affects me. And I notice, yeah, that's another thing where I, I, I can't eat a big meal before I perform, you know, on a, on a full stomach, that's just not good. Also with nerves. Uh, but I can't, I don't want to stuff myself afterwards. You know, it's being on tour and kind of thinking once again, of that sustainability, that is such a key, key thing. I, you know, I did this, these two tours once they were both a month, 24 days, 24 gigs in a row in Russia. First one was 23 gigs, 24 days. Second was 24 days, every night, a different city, different gig, just me traveling around. Uh, I had a booking agent actually set that up, a Russian guy. But that was, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to take it one day at a time and I'm actually going to eat healthy if I can. I'm going to eat salads, as lame as that is. And the nice thing about doing these solo concerts is when I'm done, I don't have to wait for the band to tear down. I don't have to wait for the band to go to the bar and hang out. I can, yes, it's fun hanging out sometimes, but sleep is a priority. And when I'm done with my gig, I just pack up my sacks and I can go right to the hotel. Um, and so I really value my sleep and I try to get eight and a half hours. Uh, if I can, I know that's going to drastically change in about a month (laughs) when I have a baby. (laughs) So we'll have to figure that out. We'll need to have another conversation in about a year. Yeah, it's going to be a lot different. Everything that I said is going to be the opposite. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Now, with a little bit of hindsight, is there a piece of advice you would like to pass on to your younger self that you would like to send back in time? You know, I heard other people answer this 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 same way, and I feel like I have to answer it this way, that I feel like I wouldn't, as lame as that sounds, other than uh, I think Carrie Kaufman said something like just telling, you know, keep doing what you're doing, you know, the decisions you're making are the right ones because I I do feel so fortunate for where I am. Sometimes, you know, I, I have the typical ups and downs, the highs and the lows of an artist's life. And sometimes it seems like too much work or I'd be happier doing something else. But there are moments where I'm just, I feel so fortunate for where I am. Uh, and I can't really look back. I don't really, I honestly don't really believe in fate or this kind of like plan this long-term plan that's been laid out for us. But I can't look back on any moments and say like that didn't, that wasn't important. Like everything really did kind of lead to this. Like my insecurities in high school turning into, you know, my building ego in undergrad turning into being torn down in grad school and burning out. And these moments of like, 
starting with classical, but then getting discouraged and then doing jazz and getting discouraged. That all led me to where I was. And then teaching for six years, which I wasn't ever like a plan of mine, but that really freed me up to just keep doing the saxophone, to keep exploring and thinking about the instrument differently. And that's all led to how I'm doing what I'm doing right now. And yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change that. Like I've said, I, if I was playing things perfectly, I'd just be another Sonny Rollins clone and <laughs> just be kind of doing nothing, you know? And, and, and a lot of people are, are, are happy doing that, and that's great. Or a lot of people burn out with the saxophone or realize they can make a lot more money a lot easier with other things, and they're very happy, and that's awesome. Um, <laughs> the most important thing is that we're, yeah, we enjoy what we're doing and we can sustain it. And so... But I, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. Great. You know, it's okay sometimes to say good job, you know, when you were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are times when it's not good. <laughs> if you Have you seen the movie Whiplash? No. You should see this movie uh, about this like jazz director from hell. And he's just, he, he, he says that the, the two worst words in the English language are good job. <laughs> because he talks about how we just say it to everybody and it doesn't mean anything. But sometimes, like for me, I do not strive with really negative feedback. Yes, I need critical feedback and I have to face the facts sometimes. But I do way better when someone actually tells me good job. Someone that I, that I trust, especially if, yes, if they mean it, if they actually mean it. And it's, yes, it doesn't mean more if they're specific. But if someone says, Derek, wow, you did great. I don't want to disappoint them the next time. I want, I have to do better than that the next time. And so that to me, yeah. So that would be looking back on myself. I'd say, good job, Derek. You're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. Now, while you're traveling around recently, maybe you could describe some of the changes that you've seen in the saxophone and also what has not changed. What is staying the same? At 35, I, I don't know how much I've witnessed. Uh, and I was just so naive when I was younger. It does seem like there has been a little bit of an awakening into this idea that the world is not going to... And this is in all genres of the saxophone. I've heard it from professors like on your interviews, but also seeing it with young players. This idea that we know the world is not just going to come to us and just an audience is going to come to us. And there won't be an audience if we don't actually think about connecting. Uh, and so it does seem like in the past few years, not, and not, I don't know, not few or decade or something. And, and maybe I just haven't noticed it. Um, like when I first came aware of your, your music or came aware of the playing of Colin Stetson, uh, who's older than me. I don't know if you know his playing, but like, just like these, these new ways of playing that are, that are still actually connecting with, with people and not everyone. Um, or, you know, I've, I've heard lots of people talk about the, you know, the, the, the John Adams piece for Tim McAllister and, you know, just kind of like the saxophone kind of getting out there and yes, there will always be those, you know, that are just playing for other saxophone players and that's fine. You know, if that's, if that's what excites them and you know, there are times when that's, that's, that excites me is to impress a sax player. 
but I, it does seem, and it's a, like a like a positive thing, that the saxophone is is getting out there a little bit more. Or I could talk about you know uh, um, the player, the Barry Sax player Leo P, who's huge on YouTube, and you know so many middle school, high school sax players absolutely love his stuff. And yes, we could we could say. Yeah, oh yeah, a lot of it's that stuff is the image or the dancing, but on some level it doesn't really matter if if it's about connecting people like I've said, he is connecting with people and he's exciting young people. He's bringing people to the instrument. Um and that's awesome. And and I've even heard more saxophones in pop music. Uh and so yeah, so I I would say that's that's very exciting and it's not going to always please everybody. Um, but I think it's exciting. And if, if, if we do really think it's about connecting and communicating, that's a good thing. Now you've mentioned your websites and your social platforms. I will make sure there's a link to all of your places where people can find oh, you, thank you on my website and, and find out what's going on and hear your recordings and all of those things and perhaps buy some sheet music too so they can tackle your yeah. your complex compositions. I mean, I put it all out there. Every detail that I can is in that stuff, all my secrets. <laughs> is there something that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean, the next thing I'm kind of working on that I'm excited about and it was inspired by this tour to these various universities where maybe some sax ensembles or jazz big bands would say, Hey, do you want to play with our student group or a couple of professional groups? Do you have any music? And at first I didn't have music. You know, I it's like, I mainly do my solo stuff, but I'll play on anything. But then I was like, I wonder if I could write some stuff that might feature some of my soloistic stuff, but also just my writing style. And so I started writing. I mean, actually that started with this, this America, the beautiful video collaboration where I had all these, U.S. sax players play this arrangement that I did, um, and that was just really fun. And then I, I started writing some big band charts, and just got you know it was, it was fun seeing the response. And so that's been kind of a new, new uncharted territory for me is is just writing more for other musicians that yeah might feature me, but might not as much the, the stuff that I can play with. And so a goal of mine is actually I think my third album I want to do like a big band album with the whole albums with a big band and me doing some of the solo stuff in between, but just my writing. And eventually this is a big, big dream. It's probably unrealistic, but to play with, with like symphony orchestras doing similar things. Um, I also just love playing in concert halls uh, compared to clubs. I love the natural acoustics um, and I certainly love stringed instruments. And so yeah, doing kind of, collaborative stuff with orchestras or symphonies, maybe starting with trying to do this at some like universities or youth symphonies, but then turning into that, you know, and this idea of, yeah, I hope that I'm always evolving and I hope that I won't always just be known as the beatbox sax guy, you know, whatever that even means. Uh, but the number one thing is that I'm still having fun. I'm still connecting with people uh, and sustaining it. And so, yeah, we'll see what other paths that takes, but that's kind of the next goal dream project. So Derek, thank you for sharing your immense experience. Also, you've got some perspectives that I 
haven't come across before and I think are invaluable to anyone who's developing their music career in general, not just saxophone players. So you're composing, you're writing, you're reaching out to your audience directly. I think all of these things are crucial now in the way that you describe it as the, the world is saturated and we have to take responsibility for our own stuff. So thank you for sharing mm-hmm. all of your experience so far and I can't wait to see what comes next. I can I can feel the ideas bubbling out of you. So um, I'll be watching and waiting to see what's, what's coming up next. So thank you very much for spending this time with me tonight and also I wish you the best in one month or so when your uh, life will change to some degree. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Barry. And yeah, and seriously, thank you to you. Uh, I I hope to stay in touch with you and cross paths with you a lot more and, you know, maybe even work together. Cause, cause like I said, like you are inspiring a lot, a lot of sax players. And I think you are helping to push this saxophone world in the, in the right way. Um, and it's, it's awesome, uh, witnessing that. So keep doing what you're doing. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show.